Good morning to all, and uh, great to see you. Let me just say a couple of things before I, I dive into the passage here. And uh, first off, if you're new, again, welcome. And my name is Brian Haybig, and I'm one of the pastors here at Downtown Prez. A couple of things, if uh, unless you just slipped in the last few minutes, you heard Daniel Norman's announcement about City Center Counseling Ministries, and I just I've really never had a good time to tell you the story, so I'm going to tell you the story. Um, about a year and a half ago, the officers went out of town on an officer's retreat, and this is when the elders and the deacons get together, and we just try to talk about what's going on with the church and what are things we need to address, but we also talk about what's just something you'd love to see happen one day. We just kind of dream together a little bit, and a year and a half ago when we were in the, what I call the dream phase, um, we were just thinking about what would be great if it happened in Greenville, and several of the guys said, wouldn't that be awesome? If uh, in the downtown area, there developed uh, a counseling ministry, and it was somebody that we could really feel good about referring people to, somebody that really wants to connect the dots between what's going on with that person and, and the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also has training about how to be a good listener and ask good questions and all that. And not a month later, Daniel, who is a ruling elder at one of our sister churches, Mitchell Road Press, just came to me and said, Hey, I just want to bounce this off you. I've got this idea about a downtown counseling ministry, and it would be, you know, we really want to connect the dots between people and, and the Lord Jesus. And uh, when I followed up with him, I said, Daniel, I hate Christian jargon. You know, I don't like Christian T-shirts even. And, uh, but I'm about to use some Christian jargon. I think it's a God thing. Okay, and I, re- and I really do. I don't use that phrase very often, but I just, we, we really haven't gotten to just toot the horn about this much, but our budget already... Um, has this in it, and, and this really is something that we're trying to uh, not only help finance and support, but want to refer people to. So I, I'm really glad for you, brother, glad for your training. I've referred a lot of people to Daniel, and uh, in fact, you, you may owe me money at this point. I don't know, but uh, uh, but we're just we're glad you're doing what you're doing, and I hope that's really going to flourish and be a blessing to, to Greenville. Other thing is, you may, if you've been around, you may be able to tell that I sound nasally, so I just want to tell you that during the Lord's Supper, I won't have the cup, okay, because there are folks who already feel nervous about the cup, that the cup might be germy or even dangerous. I, I don't believe that, but I, I will have the bread. My, ha- my hands will never touch your food, so I just want to take that worry out of your mind, okay? Um, we are jumping back into Romans. The, if, if you're visiting, just to, to get you up to speed, this summer, we took a break from what we had been studying in the sermon series, and we looked at different psalms from the Old Testament. We finished that last week, and we're going back into what we started at the beginning of the year, and that's the book of Romans. And every book of the Bible is amazing, but the book of Romans is, is just very special, and it's a book that God has used in a really singular way in lots of different people's lives. In fact, what's really wonderful is he's done that in different centuries. It's not like, well, in Romans... I mean, in, uh, in the 1600s, Romans really connected, but then not so much later. But from the early, early church to now, Romans has been a game-changer for people and for congregations, and you could even say for regions, how God has used it in people's lives. So we're going to dive back in. And here's the hard thing. It's hard to dive back into Romans. I kind of wish... There was a light, sort of breezy section of Romans to step back into and, and get reacclimated. There is no light part of Romans. Very weighty, very meaty all the way through. So we just kind of have to jump in 
and do the best we can. But just, uh, I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence, but just to get us on the same page, we're going to start back in Romans chapter 7. This is uh, a book of the Bible. It is a book in the New Testament. It is written by the Apostle Paul, who was not always Paul. For a big chunk of his life, he was Saul, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. It's written to Christians in Rome. It's not just written to generic people, and it's not just written to generic Romans that just might happen to hear this letter. It is written to the Christian community in the city of Rome in the first century. Um, l- let, me, let me highlight what, where we're picking up here, and again, I'm going to try to just get us back up to speed the best we can, but we've got to start back somewhere. Um, a huge debate in the Christian church, not only through the centuries, but it's actually still going on right now, is what do we do with the law of God if we're people that profess to believe the good news of Jesus? And here's what I mean by that. Earlier in the book of Romans, Paul has gone out of his way to say, the law finds every... He doesn't mean Roman law or just civic law. He doesn't mean Greenville law or South Carolina law. He means the law of God. The law of God is something that finds every human being guilty. Every human being. And he says across the board, and he even speaks in the first person, us, we're all guilty. And he says, if you try to take this thing and that's your way of like getting back to being a good boy or a good girl, that you're going to obey God's law and you're going to get him to like you again, it's just going to be a failed project. It, you will never dig yourself out of the condition you're in through the law. Now, all, all that I've said, I've preached on that. You can read it for yourself. And it says it in lots of places in the Bible. So then, should the Christian like the law of God or not like the law of God? If that thing finds me guilty, if that thing finds everybody guilty, and if that thing can't ever help me work my way to God, should I like it or should I distance myself from it? That's the context. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. And talk about joining a conversation midway. We start with the word or. Okay, so we, we, we're stepping back into a, a living book. But this is God's Word, Romans 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she would be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit 
and not in the old way of the written code. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, help us uh, even now, help us in the way that we just sang that you would speak to us through your word, that really we would hear what you are saying, that you'd remove distractions, misconceptions, fatigue, boredom, whatever keeps us from hearing you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Could I bother somebody to get me a cup of water? And I, I'm sorry to... Thanks, ma'am. I um, thought I was going to be able to make it, and I, I think I'm going to need some water. I don't know if you saw this story. Um, sadly, this, this is the kind of story that resurfaces every so often, but this past week, I saw a piece in the New York Times. It was about two men, one stayed up from us, Lumberton, North Carolina, who had been in prison for over 30 years. They were brothers. Um, I believe they both had some mental disabilities. Over 30 years ago, they were convicted for um, a brutal act of which they were not guilty. One was serving a life sentence. One was on death row, and they were um, exonerated last week because of DNA evidence in a retrial. Uh, you know, on the one hand, you hear that and you think, whew, I'm so glad. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad they're free. And you think about, thank you so much. Wow. Oh, the double whammy. Okay, thank you. I'm going with the bottle. Where did I put this? Thinking out loud in front of a lot of people. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Um, it, on the one hand, I'm so glad they're free. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that they walked out of that courtroom free. And you think about, though, the decades, not just the years, the decades, where as far as what is true, as far as what's real, and we could even say as far as in the eyes of God, you have people who are not guilty. They're, they're not condemned in the eyes of reality, in the eyes of God. But their condition is they're captive, they're imprisoned, they're, they're condemned. Now think about this. Um, not because I'm beating up on us, but just because this is a room full of people. Just because this is a room full of human beings, and it's a room full of people that... There's a critical mass of people that believe in the Bible and want to talk about God and want to hear about it. And there's all kinds of places you could be this morning and you're here. Um, there are lots of people in this room who are living out a spiritual parallel to those men's years in prison. Where your actual condition is that you are not condemned. You're at, like what is actually really true is that you are not guilty. And the way that you're doing life is that you're in prison. The way that you're doing life is that, uh, really, you're enslaved. Who's the, uh, who is the warden? Who is the one imprisoning you? Who is the one that you perceive as condemning you or enslaving you? And ironically, it's not some evil, hostile force. It's the law of God. That, that what you get from it is that what it does to you is it says, you always blow it, 
you'll never measure up, and you'll never dig your way out. Now, if that is the case, this text is for us. Because here's the tension of this passage, and really this is a tension in the book of Romans, and really it's a tension of the New Testament. Is the law of God a good thing for a sinner or a bad thing for a sinner? Depends. If you try to use that thing to earn your way back to God, it will be a horrible thing in your life. But if you're set free from your bondage, it can be a wonderful thing. In fact, the New Testament can even call it the law of perfect liberty. Now, how do we fit all that together? So I'm, I'm going to try to get, give us big picture about Romans and then zoom in on this passage. And here's how I want to break it down. I haven't even taken a sip of this water that I'm flailing around with in front of you. I'm sorry. Ah. All right. Here's how I want to break this passage down. The burden of the book, the location of this passage, and the release of the believer. The burden of the book, the location of this passage, and the release of the believer. First off, the burden of the book. This book, I'm saying book, it's a, it's a long letter, it's an epistle, but we call it a book of the Bible. It's written by the Apostle Paul. And like I said at the beginning, Paul wasn't always Paul. Paul was born with the name Saul. And he wasn't just Jewish. He was very, very, very Jewish. What I mean by that is he did not have what we would call a nominal religious background. He was not a nominal Jew. Saul was raised as a Pharisee. High level of devotion, rigorous training, high level of education, and that comes through in his writing, that he was highly educated. Um, Because of that, what, what, what about Paul comes out, not just in Romans, but really in all his letters, but it really comes out in Romans. Well, here's what, here was his dilemma as a Jewish man trying to please God with the law, is that he knew that God is righteous. It says that all through the Bible. It says that Old and New Testament. God is righteous. Nothing impure about him, nothing wrong with him, nothing indecent about him, nothing inconsistent about him. God is righteous. And everything God does has that on it, has that in it. So when God gives his law, it reflects what he's like. So the law is righteous. It says don't lie because he never lies. It says be pure because he's pure. Rest on the seventh day because he rested on the seventh day. He's righteous, it's righteous. But then Paul says this in Romans. Again, big picture. All right, we've got that, but here's the problem. We're not righteous. And he goes in really into some detail about Gentiles aren't. We might expect that if you don't know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You don't know his law. Don't be surprised if you break it. But then he says the Jews are not righteous. In other words, every human being is not righteous. And here's what he had experienced in his own life and then found liberty from and couldn't stop talking about it for the rest of his life. As a Pharisee, the way he was trying to demonstrate and establish, God, I'm going to be a righteous man, is by keeping the law. And what he had to deal with in his heart of hearts is, you're not. 
There's always some little way that, to quote Romans, you fall short of the glory of God. And what was revealed to him, and I'm going to read this because this is such an important passage for understanding the Bible and understanding Romans and knowing Jesus. Now, this is before the passage we're looking at. Listen to how Paul says, man, the law will find you guilty. And he knew that law from memory. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 3. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be declared righteous in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And that was his dilemma. I was taught, obey the law and you'll be righteous. And what I've realized is, I cannot become righteous by obeying the law. And God holds me accountable to be righteous. And if I stand before Him as an unrighteous man, I'll be judged as an unrighteous man. And here's the next verse. This is a huge turning point in the book of Romans. Chapter 3, verse 21. This comes right after what I just read. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, I'm covering a bunch of ground. And if you haven't been here, and I don't say this often, I'd love for you to go back, get on our podcast, and listen to some of the older stuff because we unpack this much more. But here's the big takeaway. What set Paul free and what he traveled all over the world to tell people is, is God righteous? Yes. Does his law find us guilty? Yes. If you stand before him as a guilty man or woman, will you be condemned? Yes. Do we deserve that? Yes. Can you dig your way out of that dilemma by obeying his law? No. Then how can you stand before a righteous God? And his answer is, if you believe in one who was righteous and in our place took the punishment that the unrighteous deserve, that not only will you be cleansed of your unrighteousness in God's eyes, but he will give you a righteousness. He'll give you a righteousness that is so bulletproof, it's so good, it's so intact and pure that you can stand before the burning eyes of the living God and he can say, well done. Okay, that's the big picture of the book. And what about the location of this passage? And I'm, I'm, I'm covering a lot of ground, but I want you to see how this passage is sandwiched in between two important things. Look in the italics under, the, uh, under our, our passage of Romans 7. The first part in italics is from before this passage. It's Romans chapter 6. And then the second is just a few verses after our passage. Now listen, listen to the, the, the two big takeaways here. The first one, it starts with we know. We know, again, this is writing to Christians, not just people in general. We know that our old self was crucified with him, that's with Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died 
has been set free from sin. And here's the big point. Paul wants us to know that if you believe in Jesus, if God sheds His mercy on you and saves you, you're not just a forgiven old you. And this is so important. He wants you to know that the old you died. And you are a forgiven new you. The old you died with Christ. Mysterious, yes. But true, yes. Now he just said that before our passage. Now here's what he says just a few verses after our passage. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now I want you to feel this tension. He's just been telling us, don't try to use that thing to dig your way out. And then just a few verses later he's going to say, the law is something very good. Because God is good. And it's healthy because God gives all health and life. And it's right. So what do we do with that? And and what does it mean, as the passage says, that the believer, the Christian, is released from the law? Because, man, that could sound like... Actually, that could sound like what some people hear Christians saying is, if you believe in Jesus, you don't even have to obey. It's bad enough that that could be our reputation, but what's really sinister is that inside of us we could just go, excellent, you know. Everything is proceeding according to plan. I can believe in Jesus and not have to do anything and just bust up into heaven and this will be great. Well, let's look at... This is really the point of the passage, the release of the believer. And I'm belaboring this point, but just I feel like I need to. Paul is saying this to Christians. Verse 1, do you not know brothers? Verse 4, likewise my brothers. That is his terminology with Romans he's never met, but they're his brothers and sisters who also believe in Jesus, okay? What does release of the believer look like? First off, what did the law do to the old you? If you're a Christian, before the old you died, what did the law do to the old you? And these are amazing claims. Paul says the law aroused the sinful passions. And don't think so much in terms of you know, sensual arousal, although it would, it would have something to do with that too. But the stirring up, the provoking of desires and passions inside of us. So it's doing that. In other words, Paul says just a few verses later, you know what, I really never wanted to covet that much till I saw the 10th commandment that says don't covet. And man, I wanted to covet after I read that. Don't covet your neighbor's house. And I wasn't really looking at my neighbor's house. And now I'm going, why do they have such a nice kitchen? The law, it it pushed on me. It aroused my insides. But it also did this. It enslaved me. It held me captive. What does that look like? Picture this, and Daniel could speak to this with a lot more expertise. Think about how unhelpful it is when someone has an addiction and they go to a friend or a neighbor for help and the person simply tells them what they ought to do. Like, I'm addicted to pornography. Well, you need to stop doing that. I can't. Then you're guilty. 
I'm, is that true? It's true. Is it helpful? More despair. More discouragement. Uh, I'm taking drugs that I'm not supposed to be taking. You need to stop doing that. I can't. Then you're guilty. Think about it even not in terms of addiction. Think about this. I'm depressed. Well, you should have more joy. Think of all the great things that God has done for you. You should have more joy. Think about all the things the Bible says. You should have more joy. I don't. Well, you should. More discouragement. And for this person who's discouraged now and despairing, because this is telling me the truth. This person's telling me information that's true. What does it send me to in my despair and discouragement? Back to porn. Back to drugs. Back to despondency and sadness. Paul says that's a picture of the law with the old you. I want to be righteous before God. Obey all the commandments. I can't. You're guilty. That's that's not good news. Then what happens? The believer died to the law. Did you catch the illustration he used? If you've got a married person, he uses the the female spouse, if you've got a wife, um, while her husband is alive and they're married, that law of marriage is binding. If he dies, that bond dies with him. That obligation dies with him. Paul uses that analogy. It's not a perfect analogy to say this. Was the law right when it said those things to the old you? Yes. But when you died, I know, I know if you're just coming for the first time, you may feel like you've walked into a Star Trek convention. Like I, I, re- I, I can hardly follow what you're saying. I know. It's mind-boggling. But just hang in there, okay? If the old you was condemned and told you fall short, you'll be punished. Was the law true when it said that? Yes, it was. When the old you died, what happened to the condemnation? Gone. And Paul actually says this in another letter in Colossians chapter 2. And to my, to my knowledge, the, this is the only passage in the Bible that describes God as using a hammer. In Colossians chapter 2, it says that there was this, this list that the law had. It was the rap sheet that the law had on us. All the ways that we had run up a debt with the law of God. Even the future sins that we haven't done yet. And the law is accurate. And it says that when God saved us, He took that piece of paper with all this correct information on it, all these correct reasons that we should be condemned, and he took it over to the cross and he nailed it to it. And can't you feel inside of you, well, maybe you don't, but I do sometimes, something that wants to say, but Paul, if you tell people that, they are going to live like hellions. If you tell them that there's not the possibility of getting in trouble again or being judicially punished for their sin, they're going to just live like hellions. And Paul would say, if you do not tell them that they have been set free from condemnation, 
you'll live like a hellion. You may dress it up, but you'll have the insides of a hellion. Joyless, angry at God in turns, and afraid of Him at turns. And not good afraid, bad afraid. You've got to tell people that they died to the law. Um, does that mean, then, that God doesn't care what we do? Are, are we saying this morning, yeah, live like a hellion, test the very edges, and then walk into heaven going, that was a best-case scenario. What does Paul say? Look in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. When he says the body of Christ, he doesn't mean the church. He means Jesus' flesh and blood body on the cross. So that you may belong to another. Isn't that great? It's like you were married to this condemning law, and the condemning law died to you, and now you get to marry someone else. Who do you marry? Marry Jesus. To him who has been raised from the dead, it, why? In order that we may bear fruit for God. That we may bear fruit for God. Look down in verse, um, verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Why? So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not way in the old way of the written code. Um, lots to unpack here in community groups. Think about this, though. If you didn't have the New Testament and all you had was the Old Testament, and we love the Old Testament here, don't get me wrong, but if that's all you had, would you do the things that Christians have done for the last 2,000 years, the good, the good things? Would you start the things they've started? Would you, would you try the things that have been tried? You'll only do that if you not only say, well, well of course. I mean, if, if I belong to Christ, of course I don't want to lie. Of, of course I want to not take God's name in vain. Of course I don't want to covet other people's stuff. I want to love God and love my neighbor. But, like, that doesn't give me the blueprint to go out and try the things that God would have me try. It's boundaries, but it's not all the particulars. And Paul is saying... You have been set free to obey God so that your life is in conformity with the law of God, but not because you're afraid that if you step on a crack, you're going to break God's back and He's going to get hacked off at you. That you've been set free now to live, to obey, and to serve and even try things. You know what would be music to my ears and the elders' ears and the deacons' ears and people all through this city would be that you, I'm talking to you singular, that you develop what a friend of mine calls civic courage. That you don't walk around constantly worried about, I might do something wrong and God will get mad at me, so I better not try anything new. But that because you love him, you move toward a neighbor. Or you jump in with a nonprofit. Or you do something in your work or your business because you belong to God. And you try things because you love Him. You move toward people who don't know Him because you love Him. You're even willing to try something and fail because you love Him. 
Um, let me end with this. I'm, I'm, I know I'm throwing the kitchen sink at you this morning, but it is Romans. Uh, I, growing up in Mississippi, I remember that toward, I don't know, sometime in my teenage years, I started hearing a term, and it was used in Mississippi like a holiday, and it was something I'd never heard of growing up, and I thought, did someone just invent a holiday? <clears throat> it's called Juneteenth. You ever heard of Juneteenth? Uh, a lot of that probably has to do with the demographic of the room. Do you know when the Emancipation Proclamation was issued? Fall of 1862. It was to be enacted January 1st, 1863. Of course, it wasn't in the southern states because the war wasn't over and we didn't know, people didn't know what, how it would shake out. But even after the end of combat, after Appomattox, Slavery continued, and one place it especially continued was in Texas. Not knocking Texas. I'm from Mississippi. We can all compare notes. But it's just, it's just so far away at that point in the nation's history. On June 18th, 1865, a general was sent to Galveston, Texas, with 2,000 troops. And the next day, June 19th, from the balcony... Of a, of a notable house. He read, um, I'll read you what he read. The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. And it goes on to say this. They are informed that they will not be supported in idleness, either there or elsewhere. June 19th, Juneteenth, became a celebration all over the South, and increasingly is all over the United States. Did you hear what was said? You're not a slave anymore. And that doesn't mean now embrace idleness. It means go out there and be productive and live because you're free. If there's any big takeaway from this morning, it's this. If what you regularly hear God saying is, you, you just do not measure up. I, mean, I know you believe in my son, but you're such a bad parent. I know you believe in my son, but you neglect the Bible so much. I know you believe in my son, but you constantly think about yourself, not other people. And that's all you hear him saying. Please come out of slavery. Please come out. You have already been liberated. You died to the law that condemned you. Go to a father who's already set you free. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, take now your word and... Again, as we, as we sang, just drive it deep down in our hearts. Help us live as the free. Uh, Lord, for the one who's never believed in Jesus for the first time, to receive a righteousness from him, through him, would you give him or her saving faith even this morning? We ask in Christ's name. Amen.